Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Elizabeth Lausch about her new book, The War on Learning, Gaining Ground in the Digital University. Elizabeth Lausch directs the Culture, Art, and Technology program at Sixth College at the University of California, San Diego. She's the author of Virtual Politic, an electronic history of government media making in a time of war, scandal, disaster, miscommunication, and mistakes, which is also published by the MIT Press, and is also the co-author of Understanding Rhetoric, a graphic guide to writing. Elizabeth Lausch, thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Sure. I'm delighted to be here. There's a lot going on in this book, but I want to start with the discussions around how going digital is going to fundamentally alter the nature of the university. The University of Phoenix, the Minerva Project, it's not really hard to find examples. What's driving this? Is it the cost of traditional education? Is it that these organizations believe they can offer a better education, period, and the conviction that the days of a brick-and-mortar institution are coming to an end? Or is this just a sales job using tech- new technologies to dazzle students? Well, that's a great question. Um, so, first of all, I'm not convinced that cost-cutting is actually really the driver here, Um, particularly when uh, a University of Phoenix education can be a lot more expensive, actually, than going to a local community college where you're receiving uh, transferable credits to a public institution. Um, And I think particularly when so much of this for-profit distance learning uh, actually accrues debt for students, um, that there are a lot of problematic aspects of it. Um, And I'm not convinced that it actually... Uh, Another argument is that we need to switch to these more efficient online forms of training for vocational reasons, that um, there's a mismatch between the kind of real-world jobs and what the university is offering. And I think the problem with that is that a lot of vocational fields actually require hands-on interaction and instruction so that it's hard to argue that you're getting the real-life skills when you're not getting any of the so-called soft skills. And it makes sense to me because, as an example, I know there are a lot of job opportunities in the healthcare field, but I'm not sure if I want to be helped by someone whose experience is just distance learning. Right, yeah. Do you really want to have a doctor who's, who's only had an online education? Um, and it's, it's funny because I was actually on a plane yesterday, and the person sitting next to me was a software engineer who initially grew up in Egypt. And... He, you know, he, without really realizing what I did, he asked what I thought of Coursera and these other uh, massive open online courses. And we got to talking about how he felt like his own internships that he had gotten through his uh, college had been the most important thing in terms of him uh, getting the job that he has today. And that you know, just having content ma- mastery um, would make employers even more suspicious of the qualifications of grads. So I think one of the things I, I'm trying to do in the book is kind of get at the bigger questions, at questions which is why I, I like your question, because it, 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 it says, you know, what's the problem that we're trying to solve with technology? And can we actually look at how those problems are being articulated and how the debate is being framed? And does that actually match what's going on on the ground? Um, And I think this is a question that Nishant Shah uh, has asked really well. Nishant Shah is a a researcher who studies um, how technologies are adopted in places like India. Um, And and he's critical of the kind of techno-missionary tendency to want to use technology as a delivery mechanism uh, for people to be empowered because he's not sure that that's actually how people become empowered. Um, And I think the other thing that you have to ask is not only what 
is the problem that technology is trying to solve, but how do new solutions sometimes create new problems? Um, which is something I, I direct this program called Culture Art and Technology. And a lot of what we get students to think about, actually, is this question of how new technologies uh, sometimes create uh, new problems. And that's actually a kind of old question. Uh, if you read uh, Sigmund Freud's uh, Civilizations, Civilization and, and its Discontents, um, he talks about how modern-day transportation seems to solve the problem of people being dispersed and not being able to be in contact with each other, but it also makes it possible for them to live farther away from each other um, because of these forms of transportation and therefore be dispersed. You know, I think that certainly fears of obsolescence are, are important, anxiety fears in the university feeling like, you know, hey, are these, these forms of learning that are actually coming to us from the medieval period and the Renaissance are these actually really appropriate for our contemporary lives? Um, and I think also there's this kind of love of novelty, which I talk about a lot in the book, the sort of desire for the new, the kind of love of the new gadget. Um, and I think that, you know, it, you have to acknowledge these are disruptive technologies. And faculty are, are seeing this disruption taking place. And that's, that's why I talk a lot about these uh, sort of ways that the scenes of conflict in universities become internet memes. So we have cheating videos, we have stone professor videos, angry professor videos, videos of students getting tasered, um, you know, the videos of student outbursts, um, cheat sites, like how, how do these things become uh, internet memes that, that have a kind of cult cultural currency of their own? And, you know, as I say in the book, often the response to this disruptive nature of these new technologies is a desire for command and control. So how can we, you know, we have these unruly students who are using all of these ubiquitous technologies and we somehow have to, have to get control over them. And that's a really perilous path. Uh, you, you really don't want to be thinking about education as a way to um, constrain people and as a way to get people to be obedient and compliant. You want to think about education as a way to get people to explore new possibilities and come up with new ideas and build knowledge. So is that issue of control primarily driven by administrators? Is it tied into the issue you describe in your book as the tendency to treat education as a commodity to be broadcast rather than as a joint process between student and faculty? I would think, and maybe I'm being naive here, that most faculty members would push back against that sort of commodification of the process. <laughs> I think, first of all, you have to always have to watch out for demonizing administration. You know, administration's always like the man. You know, it's a figure uh, kind of get, that gets presented as the villain. What's interesting to me is to actually look at the faculty who are most enthusiastic about adopting instructional technology. And I think it is, it's interesting because um, I think that they are often very idealistic. Um, they tend to be people who are most devoted to developing their pedagogy through experimentation. Um, and it was interesting to be working on this book and really have a, a, a fundamental set of critiques and yet find, finding that like the people that I was talking to who were trying out these new technologies, that they were remarkably generous. And they were remarkably open to my criticisms. 
Um, now, this isn't true of higher level administrators. This is true of many of the faculty members who teach MOOCs, faculty members involved in things like iPad distributions, which I'm critical of in the book, um, faculty members even who are using clickers, which I'm very critical of in the book, that a lot of them um, are really devoted to this idea of experimentation and let's see what happens if we try this new technology. Uh, of course, as I talk about in the book a lot, um, the problem is that experimenting, being experimented upon is not something that every student likes. Um, and I think the students know when they're being experimented upon. And some students are excited about being part of an experiment. Um, you know, it's like those social science experiments from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Like there were some people who were really excited about being part of these, you know, experiments involving giving people electric shock or pretending to be prisoners. Um, and there were other people who were less excited about being experimented upon. Um, but you're you're right that my I have a big gripe that has to do with trying to make education more uniformed, and I think that that's um, one of the things I'm concerned about is these canned or stock content that I think works against the drive to explore new possibilities that the university is all about. Like, what will you know if the university is all about delivering stock answers? What does that mean for what we do? You know, what's the place of the university in communities? I'm probably not a favorite among people who uh, want want bad news not to get out. Um, and I think a lot of administrators are dealing with the fact that there are these scandals at their institutions, and the scandals are often spread by social media. So could you give us an example of one of these failures that isn't, say, a student or faculty misdeed that ends up on social media, but a technological innovation that the university is unhappy with? I would say that using a technology like Turnitin.com, so Turnitin.com is a plagiarism detection system. It's an algorithm that checks student work um, against uh, existing content. And of course, the new problem that it creates is that students figure out how the algorithm works. And they learn to write in ways that will defeat its um, pattern matching capabilities. So A, they start writing in this really strange way um, in order to work around the technology. And uh, B, they start looking for sources that are um, not available online. So they still might be plagiarizing just as much. It's just that they're, they're appropriating and being creative about looking for plagiarized content. So your last chapter lays out six principles that should guide decisions about digital initiatives in higher ed. Of these six, which one do you think will be most difficult for decision makers to embrace? Um, well, a lot of the ideas that I present in that chapter are certainly likely to be unpopular. Um, I think the idea about putting, uh, about the thinking about more transparency uh, is certainly uh, an idea that isn't very popular. Um, many faculty members hate sites like Rate My Professor, but they would rather that Rate My Professor was online than their official student evaluations that their campuses generate. Um, so they would rather have this informal, sexist, racist, um, flame war site um, than the official evaluations that could 
make them look bad and also could show, um, you know, what how they're actually doing at their own institution. Um, now, the institution I'm at right now actually makes teaching evaluations, the formal teaching evaluations that are done by the institution, uh, available online um, and in an open format. So you can look and see uh, everyone's numerical stats on their teaching evaluations, um, which you know is, can make faculty feel very vulnerable because when you're teaching a class for the first time or trying something new, you're likely to get lower evaluations. Um, and also, you know, sometimes you can present material that really challenges students' fundamental assumptions, and some students don't want to be challenged. Um, I think the principles that have to do with the leveling effects of technology and thinking about teaching dialogically or as the co-creation of knowledge um, might seem hard to do. I think the idea that faculty and students should have comparable levels of control. And so that's the principle that has to do with the golden rule, uh, where I say sort of don't, don't ask your students to adopt any technology that you wouldn't want to adopt, have adopted yourself when you were a student. So think about your own, uh, your own affective and embodied responses to technology and understand how you would feel if you were in the student's place. Now, the funny thing about this is I took, this is not in the book, but I took an online teaching institute over the summer. And the idea was that in order to learn about distance learning, because most faculty members haven't ever taken a distance learning course, I was sort of the oddball in that I've taken a lot of distance learning courses, but uh, most of my peers have not. Um, and so the institute, required people to submit their assignments online and then peer grade each other using this uh, this sort of online rubric system. And what was funny is that my peers st stopped doing the assignments, stopped peer grading each other. Like they essentially um, became part of the bad retention statistics of MOOCs because they didn't like it. They didn't like being presented with multiple choice options. They didn't like having to you know, do things by these set deadlines and when the computer didn't properly register their responses, they felt frustrated and they felt angry. Um, so it was interesting to see, you know, these people dropping out of this uh, online teaching institute for the same reasons that students drop out of the online learning situation. I think the other leveling principle that um, can be difficult is the one about how faculty and students should use the same technologies. Um, I think that that's, that's hard, um, and I give some examples in the book of how faculty members are often using these technologies for their research projects that are very expensive and resource intensive, and that they can't imagine giving access to these technologies to their students. So if you're you know, working with a multi-million dollar experiment, do you really want your students in there um, you know, participating with the technologies that you're using. Um, but I think that you need to think about, do you want to give your students clickers when you don't hold a clicker? That, like, what does that say about the power dynamic when you and your students use different technologies? Um, in some ways, I have less objection to iPad programs than to clickers because usually the faculty member is using an iPad too. Um, and so there's a sense that we're all learning together, using the same technologies, sharing knowledge, building an archive, 
participating in the, the, what the university does. Elizabeth Lausch, the author of The War on Learning, Gaining Ground in the Digital University. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Delighted to be here. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash MIT Press. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2014, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.